Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at GPC, we want you to know God, love people, and live sent. From wherever you're listening, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. If you want to learn more about Grace Point, head over to gracepointchurch.net. And now, this week's message. My name is Stephanie, and I'm going to be reading our scripture for today. We are reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. It says, When he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of God. Give her a round of applause, a round of applause for the Word of God being read. Y'all can be seated. Ah, greatness. What and who is great? If your last name is Mahomes, maybe you might fall into the great category. If your last name is Swift, you might fall into the great category. Uh, I know it's way too early, but somebody said this, I heard recently, that Taylor Swift's uh, Eras Tour actually helped stave off a, a, um, a recession for our country. I don't know. Maybe that qualifies as, as, as greatness. I don't know. Maybe winning last night in the weather, uh, uh, one of the worst games, one of the worst weathers of all time considers greatness for some people. But I think it's far too early to determine if Taylor Swift or Patrick Mahomes are going to be in the great category. They're good in their own rights. But when you think about greatness, think about who is great? If you were talking about philosophy, you would have to include uh, Socrates or Plato, and you may have others. If you were thinking about a scientist, maybe it's Newton or Galileo. Maybe it's an explorer, it'd be Columbus or Marco Polo. Maybe if it was an inventor, maybe it would be Bill Gates. Maybe it would be Steve Jobs. But if you check Wikipedia, the source of all truth, uh, they will tell you there's about 125 people out there that have carried the name great attached to their name. There's people like Alexander the Great. I mean, he literally had it attached to his name, led the, the nation of, of Greece to, to its prominence, to the, uh, to a time and an era that uh, of greatness across the land. He was a military commander and conquered many lands all the way from Greece all the way to Persia. So he was considered great. There's Herod the Great. That was a person who carries the name of great next to him. And when you think about Herod, what made him great? Well, if he was a great architect, he built the second temple. They even call it, uh, they even call it the second temple of, of Herod's, uh, temple. That's one of his greatness, but he was also great with pride. He couldn't handle a baby being born in Bethlehem that he had to kill all the babies that were boys under the age of two. So he was great with pride at least. 
in that. You could talk about greatness and talk about Genghis Khan. Because that's literally what his name is meaning there. His actual name is Genghis Khan. But Genghis Khan means greatness. And he too was a conqueror in the 12th century. What is great? What makes a person great? What what uh, 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 qualifies you of putting greatness next to your name? So when you talk about who is great, I want us to swing the pendulum and talk about what is greatness. Because if you were to put Jesus in those categories of conquering lands and uh, and all that, he may not qualify as as great in many people's eyes. He was not a great philosopher, yet when he spoke, he spoke with authority. He was not a great scientist, but yet he created the entire uh, world. And uh, and he was also uh, able to take the natural world. of 30, In 36 miracles later, he uh, defies natural world. He was an explorer, but he wasn't an explorer, but yet he could explore the depths of a human heart. Heart. He was not a conquering king, but he was the king, and he is the king of kings. And we got to remember in the light of everything that we talk about in our, in our world that Jesus is about a kingdom. It's about his kingdom. It's about a kingdom of heaven, because that is a common thing that he talks about uh, throughout his ministry. It's actually the very first words out of his mouth, after he goes to the cross, excuse me, after his temptation, after he's baptized, after he spends 40 days praying and fasting, the very first words out of his mouth as he begins to preach in Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 is Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, turn to Turn away from whatever you've been chasing and following, and I want you to turn your affections towards the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's going to need a whole lot of definition. We're going to have to parse that out. We're going to have to tease that out to know exactly what that means, and Jesus will spend a whole lot of his time doing just that very thing. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew alone, 37 different times will he refer to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Whenever you come to the Sermon on the Mount, five times in the Sermon on the Mount alone, he will refer to the kingdom of heaven. And you go to the Beatitudes. I said, that's the microcosm of the microcosm. If the, if the gospel is the spark notes, the spark notes of the spark notes are the Beatitudes. Well, there are two times that he refers to the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't skip over that because he literally starts with the kingdom of heaven and he ends with the kingdom of heaven. It's like bookends to the entire things that he says about the Beatitudes, the attitudes that ought to be, that he literally says this in verse 3. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we cannot talk about the Beatitudes. We cannot talk about the Sermon on the Mount. We cannot even talk about Jesus and not talk about his kingdom. But let me say this. So important that we get a perspective of his kingdom and let it begin to shape who we are. He was not a conquering king. He is actually a compassionate king. He is not a king that forces us like a conqueror to follow him. He invites us to follow him. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. If you choose not to repent, then you don't go into the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Jesus even said in John chapter 18, verse 36, that my kingdom is not of this world. That is no small statement. Whenever you're thinking about the kingdom of heaven and you're thinking about the world in which we live 
And so much of what we focus on is propping up our kingdom, our world, our political system even, to the point that we make it our focus. But when we have to really unpack this, we have to understand that God has a kingdom. It's not of this world. And it's the world in which we, it's the kingdom in which we turn our lives towards. Now, why is this important? This is important for so many ways. One's been the Beatitudes in the beginning and the end. But it's also important for us to know. Have you noticed it's 2024? And have you noticed in 2024, there's an election coming up? So let me just say something here. At the beginning of the year, it's not Super Tuesday. It's not primary time in, in, in Arkansas. But I want to say on the front end of the year, as we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, it's not the kingdom of the Republicans. It's not the kingdom of the Democrats. And believe it or not, it's not even America that's the kingdom of God. Now, that may be a shocker for some people because I'm afraid that the church in so many worlds has been accosted has been almost sold its soul to a political party and a political system. And we have got to redeem it and claim it back. Can I get a hearty amen to that? Listen, what happened in 2020 and what happened after 2020 and what is still going on to this day, we need to have a serious realignment around the kingdom of heaven. It's not of this world. But yet, it is so important that Jesus builds a doctrine on it. And then, one of the times he talks about it, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6.33, he says, hey, if you're going to seek after anything, seek after the kingdom of God, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So that needs to become the very focus of and the intention of our hearts. And what does it mean whenever Jesus is king of my soul? Not necessarily king of my party, not going to say king of my country, but he's king of my soul. That means I'm going to look, I'm going to listen, I'm going to lead, and I'm going to love a bit more like Jesus every day. And so if I can look, listen, lead, and love a bit more like Jesus every day, then the kingdom of God is taking more and more place, a part of my soul and my heart. And he is more and more in charge of who I am. The Beatitudes, the attitudes that ought to be, is literally challenging us to reset at the very beginning of his message, to reset our lives according to this. Again, I think the sequence is very, very important that we understand that God wants our lives to be flourishing. That's why every time he opens it up, he opens it up with blessing. It's the idea, there's multiple ways and you look in the scripture of blessing. There's the blessing of a king blessing you. That is actually not the intent of this, that as if the blessing is bestowed on somebody. Somebody sneezes, blessing them. You bless the meal. That's not what it's meant to. It's actually an internal blessing that comes from the inside out. That God is going to do a work inside of us from the inside out so that we are blessed as our attitude is set and the promise becomes a reality. The structure of all of the Beatitudes falls in line with this. Now, whenever you start looking at the Beatitudes, you just look and you study and you observe. You look, you study and observe. Those who went to Bible study methods class, you understand observation is absolutely key. Well, one of the times I was studying through the Sermon on the Mount, I began to notice several things. Here's a couple of things that I noticed in this. Whenever you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and you run them side by side and you look at the time when when God met with Moses on Mount Sinai, 
Remember I said mountains are big for God. He shows up on the mountains. He shows up to, 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 to Moses on a mountain. And what does he do? He downloads Ten Commandments. Well, if you look at the New Testament, and you'll find this, that there are eight Beatitudes. In the Old Testament, God is establishing His law. But when you come to the New Testament, Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. So He is literally marrying the old and the new together. So it's not like the old is against the new. Out with the old, in with the new. They are coming together. He is fulfilling fulfilling the, the, the commandments as they come together. And, the, and, and here is where what they did is they took the Old Testament law in the New Testament period, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and so forth. They took the law and they made it your means of salvation, which it was never intended to be. You gotta do this, you gotta do this, and you gotta do 613 laws to fulfill all of the Ten Commandments. It's a whole big thing that they made. That was never God's intent for the Ten Commandments. If you look at the Ten Commandments, and you also again look at the Beatitudes, the first five of the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with God. You look at the first five, first four of the Beatitudes, they largely deal with your relationship with God. It starts out with poverty of spirit, and it moves right through what we talked about last week. But then you look at the second part of the uh, of the of, of the um, Ten Commandments, and they relate to others. How we relate with other people, and you'll also notice in the Beatitudes that it's how we relate to others. Jesus is bringing the old and the new together. But here's what I want you to see: if we're going to move to greatness, and if you want to call Mike Mike the Great, okay, and feel free to do that. Uh, I want you to call me Mike the Great, not because I'm a conqueror, a philosopher, I'm a great teacher, I'm a, I'm a great physician, I'm an explorer. I want you to call Mike the Great because Mike looks a lot like Jesus. He looks, listens, leads, and loves more and more like Jesus every time I'm with him. And what does that mean? Because here's the life principle for us. Greatness comes from the inside out. We think if I get enough accolades, if I get enough people following me, if I sell enough albums, if I win enough Super Bowl rings and all that kind of stuff, that I will be made great. If I set enough records in this world, if I, if I beat my, my competitor or other people on my team <coughs> with the, with, uh, you know, with whatever my score is on my job, I will become great. That is a pursuit of greatness that only leads us empty in the end. Greatness happens from the inside out. It starts with that poverty of spirit, but it moves from our relationship with God into our relationship with others. We talked about this last week, that crowds are good. There's a crowd in this room today, okay? There's crowds are good, but disciples are great. And what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to make disciples out of us. Whenever you look at last week, again, we've got a part one, part two message here today. So just in quick review, you, you've got to learn to be, you've got to understand that you've got to be poor before you can be rich. Before you can have the kingdom of heaven, you've got to first of all be poor in spirit. So you've got to be poor before you can be rich. You've got to weep before you can laugh. You've got to be humble before you can be exalted. Proverbs 15.33, I had this in my notes last week and I didn't read it. But before honor comes humility. All right? We understand that the meek will inherit the earth. Before I'm great on this earth, before I'm going to make an impact in this world, I first of all got to empty myself of myself. There's got to be a detoxification of myself. But you also got to be hungry before you're satisfied. That's what we talked about last week. But let's move to our relationship with others. Here's what we learn, number one. 
Four actions to a great person in great relationships with other people. One is we become mercy givers. Mercy givers. If you were to ask me prior to preparing this message, and un, prior to preparing this message, what makes a great relationship? What quality do I bring to any relationship that makes it stellar and awesome? And how can I better be a, a better friend, a better husband, a better leader, a, 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 whatever? And it's not some of the things that we might put at the top of the list. The very first thing he gives us here in relationship with others is mercy. We start all our relationships with mercy. Look closely there at what he said in verse 7 when he tells us, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Wow. The fact is, is that I need to understand what mercy is. I need to understand what mercy is so I know what I'm getting. I need to know what mercy is so that, I, that I'm giving it away. First of all, it's not grace. Grace is, 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 is its own thing. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, okay? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Now, they go together. They're heads and tails of the same coin in so many respects. Many times we don't have grace without mercy and mercy without grace. They definitely come together. But when you look at the Beatitudes, just grace alone, you ought to be seeing grace is flowing through. Every time God says blessed, that's a statement of His grace. He is wanting to us to be blessed from the inside out. But also mercy. Mercy, if you understand that, as, as not getting what you do deserve, then what, what that means for us, next time you get pulled over and the blue light special's going off behind you and they don't give you a ticket, that's called mercy. You should have got what you should have got, but you didn't get it. Well, guess what? That, you just experienced mercy from somebody, a higher power, a higher authority in your life that just gave you that. Now, here's the problem with mercy. We love getting mercy. We don't love giving mercy. I want you to think of that person. That person right now, who if they were to walk in the room, they would change your disposition. Think of that person who literally your sweaty palms might develop or your heart rate might change or there is a feeling and an emotion that is attached to that person, that may be the person that needs mercy the most from you. We love getting mercy, but we're not big on giving mercy. We live in a shame and cancel culture, not a mercy and grace culture. Shame culture has really developed, and cancel culture has really developed since the invention of iPhones, believe it or not, and also of social media. We find shame is so easy to give whenever we don't like somebody and somebody makes us mad and we want to get even with them. And so we will either aggressively go at them or passive-aggressively go at them. And here's what most Christians do. They will passively, aggressively go at somebody, but they'll go with them on social media. They'll go at them in their prayer groups. They'll go at them and say, I have a special prayer request. I've got somebody that I, and whatever, and we start filling in the blanks just enough to get people to think about that person that may have hurt us. 
What are we doing shaming? Let us be careful because in a few weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to talk about how to be a Christian and how to have anger all rolled up in one. We have to be really careful because, again, I'm going to say it a hundred times probably today, we love getting mercy, but we don't love giving mercy. And we have to be very, very cognizant of that because the next thing right behind that is cancel. It's like I just easy to find it easier just to cancel you. Put you out of my life. It starts with a disagreement. It moves to demonization. It talks about victimization. And then we just leave them. We ghost them. We walk away from them. We love getting mercy. We don't love giving mercy. Here's the life principle for you. When you look at the beatitude, it doesn't take long to figure this life principle out. You can't be a mercy taker unless you are first a mercy giver. You don't believe me on that? Look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. At that time, they will receive mercy. I literally need to have a posture in people's that have offended me and hurt me and I disagree with them or whatever, fill in the blank there, that I'm the one who actually initiates the giving of mercy. We're going to see in a few weeks, again, when we talk about anger, how that whenever you're at the offering and you're giving your offering and you're literally in the act of worship and you remember that your brother has something against you. So you don't have something against them, but they have something against you. You leave your offering and you go be reconciled. So again... What Jesus is going to do and flip this around to become a Jesus follower, I'm going to listen, love, learn, and lead a little bit more like Jesus every day. I'm literally going to be a mercy giver. What does that look like? Exodus 34, verse 6 is a great picture of our, of our God in his acts of mercy. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and in truth. That's what Merciful God looks like. It's so important that we learn to give mercy before we expect mercy, that even in the idea of forgiveness, which is an act of mercy, is that we learn to forgive because if we don't forgive, then we literally are not forgiven from God our Father. Now, forgiveness doesn't always mean reconciliation. There's a whole story about that. There's a whole much more on that. But the point is, is that I am releasing that person from the offense that has happened to me. This is what it says in Matthew 6, 15. It says, but if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. The merciful will receive mercy. The forgiver will receive forgiveness. Here's a life principle for you too. Forgiveness is never Earned, it's always given. The very root of the word forgiveness is the idea of giving. In our own hearts and lives today, have you experienced Jesus like that? Have you experienced Jesus and his mercy in your life? Before we keep talking about other people's relationships, let me just talk about your relationship with God. Do you have that kind of relationship? Because when you look at the scriptures, all through it is God and his mercy interacting with us. Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, that you might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of our people. So there's a direct connection between sins forgiven and, and sin payment and mercy. 
Titus chapter 3 verse 5. He saved us not to become works done by, by our righteousness, but according to His own mercy. He washed uh, uh, the, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of His Spirit. When you look at this passage, I want you to look at that top one there. Have you noticed the difference between dead and alive? See those two words there? Dead and alive is God's mercy interrupting us. The difference between life and death. Do you have that kind of relationship with Jesus? Have you met His mercy, encountered His mercy? I pray today you not go any further in this conversation before you say yes to Jesus and ask Jesus, Jesus, I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need you to butt God into my life, interrupt my life so that I can walk in mercy, live in mercy. Number two is there's a purity of heart. Purity of heart. Being a Jesus father, a follower is being as Jesus is and doing as Jesus does. That's about as simple as I can make it. What are you hungering for? You're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's what he calls us to. That righteousness is that character of God and the conduct of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I'm holy. We're literally called to be set apart, to be different from, not better than. In fact, the more grace you experience, the more you realize that you're not better than anybody. But it's only by the grace and the mercy of God that intersected into your life. I don't know about you, when I was a kid growing up, going to Sunday school, I was taught a song, Oh, be careful little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful little feet, where you go. You remember that? Raise your hand. Okay? That's a lie. You don't start with your hands, your eyes, your ears, your feet. You start with your heart. I mean that. Because if we start with our hands, our ears, our eyes, and our feet then we're no better than the Pharisees. This is what it says of the Pharisees, the hard right religious leaders that were all caught up in the law. It says that, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup. You get your hands right, your ears right, your eyes right, and your feet right. But on the inside, you're robbery and self-indulgence. We've got to start on the inside. God does His greatest work from the inside out. Who can go to the mountain? Who can, who can ascend to the holy temple? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart. Creating me a clean heart, O oh God, is what, what David cried out to God whenever he realized that he was living in sin. Verse 10, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think about that for a moment. Does God show up differently? Maybe. Does God, He's always everywhere at once. I think what it means more than anything is whenever we get a clean heart, a pure heart, we get rid of the pollution of our life. We get rid of the obstructions of our life. We get rid of the addictions of our life. We get rid of the hang-ups of our life. We get rid of the bad habits of our life. We get rid of those things that have pulled us away from loving God and seeking His righteousness. And all of a sudden, now we start seeing God in all of His glory. All of a sudden, now we get rid of it. It all. I'm reading a book right now called Respectable Sins. 
Because there's certain sins in our culture that we actually are okay with. Okay with. Now, if I stood on the stage today and said I'd had an affair this week or I'd stole money from the church or, or any other number, like I killed somebody or whatever, you might go, okay, immediately I'm out of this church. This is a whacked church. This is a whack pastor. I'm, out. I'm gone. I get it. But literally this past week in preparing for this message, I took my journal and I just began to think, in my life in the past seven days, how have I allowed things to obstruct and get into my life and mess up and cloud my relationship with God? And I don't stand up here in any way trying to have some false, humble brag or humility up here. But here's, here's where I am. I started making a list of all the things that I had to confess this week to God. About seven days. Pride. Envy. And I'm literally thinking of circumstances and situations. Anger. Lust. Gluttony. Malice. Discontentment. Materialism. Impatience. Nine different sins that I had to confess before God. I am not a perfect pastor. The thing is, is that I've had to realize that gluttony may be a respectable sin in our culture, but it's not right with God. And if I'm going to be pure in heart, I've got to get rid of that out of my life. So here's two things that I have realized, and these are just mine, okay? You might have five things you've realized. Two things I've realized. Number one is I've got to be in the fight. I've got to be in it to win it. Do I want to win the spiritual battle for my soul? Because if I am not in it to win it, if I'm not in the fight, then guess what? I'm literally laying my soul down for Satan to have his way. This is what Paul said in Galatians. He said, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, the Spirit of God that's in me. My flesh, Mike McDaniel, the brokenness of Mike McDaniel, is literally against God's Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. So you can see where this is going. They're opposed to one another. They're warring with one another to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Do you realize that there's a battle for your heart and your soul? Pride, envy, anger, lust, gluttony, malice, discontentment, materialism, impatience may not be your nine that you've had to deal with this past week, but what are yours? And if you say, I'm good, Mike, then you have literally laid down and you are going to become a pawn in Satan's game. Are you in it to win it? Number two is I keep a short list with God. As soon as I feel the conviction of his spirit, in that moment, I stop and I seek God and I give it to God and I confess it to God. I don't wait till the end of the day. I don't wait before I come to church on Sunday. I get clean as soon as the conviction comes to me. I want to make it right with Lori if I've offended her. I want to make it right with someone else if I have offended them. I want to get it right immediately. I want it out of my life because why? I want to be pure in heart. Why do I want to be pure in heart? Because I want to see God. I want to see God in my life. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you notice up there in that verse, there's only one thing that you do. You confess your sins. Bring them to God. Agree with God about your sins. God does everything else. He's faithful. He forgives us of our sins. He cleanses us and he makes us right again. He fixes what has been broken. I've spent a lot of time talking about being a mercy giver because it's where all our relationships start. Then it moves to a purity of heart. If I'm pure at heart, I can see God. I'm going to be better in my relationship with others. But it's also peacemaker. There's a peacemaker with others. It's one of the marks of a follower of Jesus. Now, when you want to know about a peacemaker, look at Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. He himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. He's called the Prince of Peace. He came, we just celebrated in this Christmas season. The message of the angels is peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's Jesus who made both groups. Now notice this, there's a whole message in this one verse. Who made both groups, warring sides, into one. And broke down the barriers. He didn't build walls, he breaks down walls. He brings us together. See, the modus operandum of Jesus is to bring peace, is to work for reconciliation, to do what it takes to to bring us back together. Another life principle for you, your relation to God is validated by your willingness to reconcile with others. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. The mark of a peacemaker, verse 9, they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Steve Douglas, former president of Crew uh, International, uh, told the story one time when I was with him and a group of other uh, pastors and missionaries. And he told the story of a tribe in Ethiopia that was literally spoke the same language, but they were at war with each other. I mean, they had spears and they had deaths and they had... Everything going on between them, the missionaries were doing all that they could to bring them back together. And so the idea was presented, and it was risky to say the least, but they did it. The crew missionaries decided that they were going to show the Jesus film. Have you ever seen the Jesus film? It's it's been seen by millions of people. And literally, with the screens, because we had one when we lived in Zambia, and you could see the film on both sides of the screen, the way you project it up there. And so what they did is they called these two warring tribes that spoke the same language, and the Jesus film was in that common language. They brought them together, and they put one tribe on one side of the screen. They put another tribe on the other side of the screen. But they required, before you could come in to see the movie, you had to leave your spears out there. And so they came, and they sit down. And they watched the film. And at the end of that movie, one by one across the front of each section, they started coming to Jesus. Missionaries were there. People were there to help them, counsel them, walk them through that. They came to Jesus and on their own initiative, they passed that barrier, that screen, and they started reconciling one by one with one another. That's what happens when we let the Prince of Peace into our relationships with others. And it gives validation that we truly are the sons of God.
Are you a mercy giver or a mercy taker? You can't be a taker unless you're a giver. Do you have purity of heart, obstructed view of God, or a clear view of God? Are you a peacemaker? Number four, you're a perseverer of persecution. Now, what a contrast, what a juxtaposition, if you think about it. Everything about giving grace and mercy and pure of heart and and everything about being a peacemaker. And the very next beatitude is about persecution. Here's just the reality. You can't reconcile with everyone. You, as a child of God, should do everything in your power to reconcile, but you can't reconcile with everyone. There are times that some things are just irreconcilable. Now, don't throw in that towel too quickly. But here are some people, reconciliation, forgiveness takes one person, reconciliation takes two people. Two people coming together in this situation in verse 10. That's not exactly what it happens in verse 10 of chapter 5. Look there with me. Blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We come right back to where we started. Those who are persecuted. You got to realize in time, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's in front of them. And what is in front of them? This is in the first century. In the second century. In the third century. The, the, the Roman government is going to sanction literal 10 different sanctioned, state sanctioned periods of persecution from the time of Jesus to 310 AD, where the government says, Kill the Christians, persecute the Christians, crucify the Christians. And literally, they would do that. They would crucify the Christians. Peter was crucified, but he was crucified upside down. Whenever you look at, when you look at, uh, in the first century, they would saw people in half. They would take bodies and tie them to wild animals and then set wild dogs loose on them. They were, they were torn in pieces. Women were tied to, to mad bulls and dragged to death. At nightfall, they would take Christians and tar them, put a stake in them, burn them as street lamps so Nero could have a way to walk in his garden. Nero burned the city of Rome so he could build it for his own glory, blamed the Christians so that Christians would be persecuted. That is the world in which they live. You know, okay, Mike, that's, that's then, this is now. We don't have those problems today. Let me tell you about my trip to Indonesia. When I met Jessica, it wasn't her name, but that was what we called her to protect her identity. And to be honest with you, I don't even remember her real given name. So I call her Jessica. She's about 20 years younger than me. We had dinner with some other folks. I was members at a fish cafe right on the right on the water shore, and we were sitting there. And she was telling, she was telling her story about how she came to faith in Jesus, and how her mother found out that she was now a follower of Jesus. And they were very, very strict Muslims, very strict. And so, mother takes daughter and calls the older brothers to beat daughter. And then locks her in her room and would only let her out under strict family supervision. 
Until they found out that she actually had a smartphone and she was using her smartphone. I met this, this girl. I mean, she's incredible. She's just telling me this, rolling it off as if it's just everyday language. She said she had a smartphone and her mom found out that she was reading her Bible on her smartphone. She took her smartphone. She was locked in her room, beaten by her brothers and sisters, by her mother, isolated, taking her phone away, everything. Now, that means a whole new meaning to taking your phone away, right? You realize last year alone, 5,621 people suffered for their faith and gave up their lives for Jesus' name? Listen, it's not just then, it's now. That there have been more people died, killed for their faith since the 19th century than all the previous centuries prior to that. Okay, okay, my, my time out. That's there, that's not here. Actually, it's not only then, it's now, it's not only there, it's here. Because I've talked to teenagers who try to live out their faith in their school, in their settings in school, and how they're bullied, and how sometimes they're shamed, sometimes they're canceled, sometimes they're bullied online, sometimes they're bullied in the locker room, sometimes they're bullied uh, in the hallways for living out their faith. I'll tell you about a man in our church who worked for a company, a company still in this area, that this was not a company policy, but somehow it became a part of the, his team's policy, unwritten policy, if you will, passive-aggressive policy. Where he was a person who loved Jesus, loved the Lord, loved to go on mission trips, loved to go on our global adventures. Even led some of our global adventures. He would literally had so many weeks and days of, uh, of PTO time that he would, outside of vacation time with the family, he would spend it all going on global adventures with Grace Point. But he got on the team, with the team dynamics, thought he was a joke for going on these trips, going on these global adventures. So he carried his faith very real for him. And so when they would go out for their team trips around wherever they would go and do their thing, uh, they would all go out to certain kinds of bars and he refused to go. And then they began to laugh at him because he would go on these trips and do these things and they would call him Mother Teresa. And then it began to affect uh, how he was evaluated on the team because he wasn't a part of the fun times with the team. So he wasn't a team player. And he had worked for this company for 20 years and had superior reviews on all of his jobs. And now all of a sudden, he's being pinged for not being a team player. Guys, there is persecution there. There is persecution here. It is then and it is now. And it's a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Even Paul said he longed for the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus said, bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. You know, back on Jessica one last time, there was a thing about Jessica that I just can't get over. To this day, literally what happened is after that meal, I went and sat in the car with the other missionary and we just debriefed because he had heard things that he had never heard before. I'd heard things that I'd never heard before. But I'd also saw something I'd never seen before. Here's a person who'd been beaten, isolated from family, 
near death and now is now living in a safe house of a church. And she was the most joy-filled individual. How do, you, how do you make that up? She wasn't faking it. It was so real for her. And then I come to verse 11 and 12. Blessed are those when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, Jesus says this at the front of his ministry, but he could say, and so they persecuted me. You want to look at Jesus and be like Jesus and look, listen, lead, love a bit more like Jesus? You have got to be a mercy giver, not just a taker, because that's exactly what Jesus was. He was a mercy giver. He was pure in heart, an untainted heart, a heart all with God and full of uh, uh, attention on God and full awareness of God. He was a peacemaker. He was the prince of peace. He suffered persecution like no one else. Being a follower of Jesus and being that flourishing self. What makes a great person is to be as Jesus is and to do as Jesus does. Would you bow your heads with me? It's dealt a lot with relationships. Some more broken than others. Some might that little, might literally lead to persecution for your beliefs in Jesus. And your your persecution may be like Jessica's. Come from family. Come from friends. Not far off. Not some oppressive government. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't know if you're ever entered into that mercy relationship with Jesus, but we were all dead. I was even dead in my trespasses and sin. But God, rich in mercy, made me alive in Christ Jesus. Father, you know every one of our hearts. You see inside of us. And Lord, you want to do a great work in us. You want to make us your disciples. You want to make us like you. You want to make us like you. That's greatness. That's greatness. Lord, would you make us better at giving mercy? Would you help us, Lord, to long and seek after a pure heart, to hunger and thirst for righteousness that puts us on a path to a pure heart? Or would you give us the commitment, the Christ-likeness that we can be peacemakers? And Father, when we can't make peace, we feel shunned and persecuted, shamed and canceled. Lord, may we stand with you and never allow the world to steal our joy. Father, in this space right now, we just ask that you would do a great work. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
This is your time. Don't rush out of here. There's nothing more important than these moments right here. And as we move forward in this study of the Sermon on the Mount, knowing that you have a relationship with Jesus is preeminent. Thanks for listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. To stay up to date on all things GPC, follow us at Grace Point NWA on Facebook or Instagram. As you go, be people who show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Live Scent.